I'm Tim Gombas, and this is Faith Improvised, a podcast where I can think out loud and talk with friends about things that interest me. Books, films, sports, music, culture, politics, the wonders and complexities of being Christian in this world, and my academic discipline, biblical studies. You're welcome to email me at faithimprovised at gmail.com, or you can leave a voice message at the podcast homepage on anchor.fm. In this episode, I share a few reflections and random thoughts. I talk about a book I've read two or three times over the last few years, and I share some concluding thoughts about cruciformity and how Christian identity works. So first, some uh, reflections and random thoughts from the past week. Uh, First of all, I got uh, a text from my friend Steve who pointed out that Christian identity is the name of a white supremacist group. My word, unbelievable. Just to say, I mean no connection whatsoever uh, to a group called Christian Identity. What I've been talking about over the last several weeks is just um, identity as Christians and how identity functions in uh, in the Bible and in the New Testament. There's a load of, load of stuff I'd love to say uh, more about that, but I've just been kind of talking about the heart of Christian identity, which is cruciformity, that is identity in the Bible. Uh, not at all this group. Um, I was going to text Steve back and say, dadgummit, whiteness just keeps ruining everything, and now it's sort of overtaking Christianity. Um, I thought that for about a second and a half, but of course this is the case. Um, this is not something that's a recent phenomenon. Uh, white supremacy has been woven into the heart of Christianity for the last 401 years, uh, on this land anyway, in America, uh, where I'm talking to you from. Um, but if you read Willie Jennings's book, The Christian Imagination, one of the most mind-blowing books uh, I've read in the last 10 years easily, um, Jennings talks about how uh, whiteness has been has infected uh, Christian theology for, for the last 700 years, ever since the start of the, clo- the colonial period uh, with the Portuguese and the Spanish. Um, whiteness and the, the centering of European uh, Christianity has um, basically Christianity was woven within and Christian theology was developed within the frame of white supremacy and whiteness. Uh, so, of course, there's some white supremacist group called Christian identity. What a damnable, damnable thing uh, is white supremacy, militant white supremacy for sure. Um, but uh, what a damnable reality we are caught in. Um, the kind of white supremacy that flies under the radar, or at least that uh, to which white people are blind and uh, to which we must um, awaken uh, to save our souls and to, um, to, enjoy the, to enjoy God's blessing. A second thing, uh, far more lighthearted, got a text from my friend Doug, uh, my old high school buddy Doug, this last week. And uh, telling me about this wonderful new song. Um, Doug and I uh, shared loads of music with each other back in, uh, in, in, high, in our high school years, which was the 80s. Passed around loads of just alternative music, great tunes. And uh, one of our favorite bands was New Order back in the day. The band that grew out of uh, Joy Division. And uh, apparently Gorillaz, the contemporary band, um, got together with Peter Hook, the basis for New Order for Joy Division, and then later New Order, 
And uh, they made this new song called Aries. And Doug texted and just said, man, you got to hear the song. I've been listening to it on my drive home every day from work. And it just makes me so happy. And um, I listened to it a few times. And then um, on my morning walks, I do not bring my phone. I do not listen to music. Don't listen to podcasts. Over the last couple of weeks, I have just been doing that a little bit more increasingly. And um, was I listened to this song a few times over the last week on an early morning walk. And just I had the biggest smile on my face. So if you um, dig New Order, if you dig Joy Division, check out this song by Gorillaz with Peter Hook called Aries. Um, if you're of a certain age and uh, those years were uh, coming of age years back in the 80s for you and, you, and uh, some alternative music was the soundtrack of your life back then, check out this song. You will dig it. It'll make you smile. Thirdly, um, <clears throat> I got an email from Rick this last week um, asking uh, just some, a really, bring up a really good sort of pushback um, to my take about parachurch ministries. I just expressed some concern. I don't, I don't have a massive uh, objection to parachurch ministries in themselves. My bigger concern is sort of what has happened to the church? Um, you know, what, what is the church missing out on um, by basically farming out Christian existence to parachurch organizations? Um, that's my big concern. And um, just, I think there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. And a lot of my comments are um, not sort of fully formed and mature. I just sort of shared some thoughts, but uh, I want to read this email from Rick, and then I got just earlier today got a note from uh, my good friend Mark as well about this. So I'll just share some thoughts. First, this is uh, this is from Rick. Uh, quote this in full here. I guess I have an issue with this idea of effectiveness and how it relates to ministry within the church body. I understand that there are these dynamics that take place when ministry is done within the church body and have seen it firsthand. I'm the director of programs operations at a certain shelter in Orange County. It's a nonprofit with a vision of ending homelessness in Orange County, and we provide shelter and housing for vulnerable individuals experiencing homelessness. Uh, interjection by me. That is awesome. Massive, massive problem in, uh, in our entire country today, as it is in the city in which I live. Back to Rick. I understand your point about effectiveness being tied to America and prosperity and all that. I also agree that parachurches, nonprofits have these structures and pay scales, goals, etc. However, my experience in this area has been interesting. I believe a majority of church groups that come to serve at any of our shelters and other facilities are coming for an experience. This is the relationship building idea that you discussed. They want to come and serve a meal and bring young children along as a teaching opportunity and basically make tokens out of the individuals experiencing homelessness. Interjection by me. Yes, absolutely. And that is awful. And by the way, that is a teaching moment for young uh, children. It teaches them that doing Christian activities happens once in a great while and for like three hours as you grit your teeth and bear it and sort of touch people that are unlike us for just a brief time and then get back to your comfortable existence so that this is definitely a teaching moment just like we teach our youth in many of our churches um that what's really important is to go on like a seven to ten day short-term trip and that's what it's all about in serving quote unquote those people over there 
um, not forming uh, 10, 15, 20 year relationships with neighborhoods in our own city, two, three miles away, or say um, a local jail that resides three miles from where I'm sitting right now. Anyway, Rick did not write all that. That's me interjecting. So back to Rick. I believe, I believe a majority of church groups that come to quote unquote serve at any of our shelters or other facilities are coming for an experience. This is the relationship building idea you discussed. They want to come and serve a meal and bring young children along as a teaching opportunity and basically make tokens out of the individuals experiencing homelessness. I'm just getting angry reading that. <laughs> that's, that's so true. We can educate the volunteers' ministry teams, but they really aren't interested in being effective. Um, you're right, Rick. They're not interested in being effective. They're not um, interested necessarily in long-term efforts either. Anyway, back to Rick. Sorry, I'm interjecting way too much. They often will want to come and offer a four-hour window, but fill it with an hour and a half lunch and then ask the typical question before they leave, can we take a picture with the homeless? Most prefer to have a clothing drive at church and collect a bunch of jeans with holes in them rather than going to a city council meeting and supporting the addition of permanent supportive housing units in their neighborhood. I find they want much more of an, of an experience. And I think what Rick means is just a brief experience, a one-shot experience, sort of a drive-by experience of being Christian. Maybe, maybe three hours of Christianity uh, will do for us. I'm editorializing Rick here. I find they want much more of an experience than to be effective. I feel like being effective is necessary. Yes, I totally agree. Of course, there are a few that come and understand and want to serve and love those that are marginalized and treat the LGBTQ community with respect and love. So some thoughts about this. First of all, Rick, thank you so much. This is massive, uh, massively important reality. Um, that sort of one-time experience of, of doing some service is, is awful, very honestly. Um, it's basically a chance for us to take a photo with um, you know, people who live in urban settings or the homeless or the other or whatever and um, you know, garner attention for ourselves saying, hey, look at us doing good. And that is completely what I am not talking about. Such, uh, such efforts are absolutely and totally counterproductive. They, they do damage uh, to the environments that they are set in, and they do damage to us. That is, they reinforce that um, ministry and mission are things you do for maybe 10 days every couple of years or for three hours every couple of years, uh, rather than um, something that you do in a sustained, something that a community does in a sustained fashion over a generation. That's um, a far different reality. What I'm taught, what I'm trying to get at, what I'm talking about, is a church of say, you know, 150 people, orienting their community entirely around a targeted effort, like the one that Rick mentioned. Say, like a community, um, uh, a welcome center uh, that helps homeless people get into either uh, homes or find jobs or whatever the case, or even a church committing itself to. Um, an organization like this and saying, we are going to be your partners for the next generation, the next 40 years. And we ourselves are going to um, supply uh, bedrooms where we can take people in. We're going to um, reconfigure and refurbish our church building uh, to um, turn it into small apartments. Um, and we ourselves will stay at the church and form community around people who desperately need family and intense 
friendships and connections. And we will be basically a family, a warm, welcoming community for these people. Um, so developed by relationship development, what I'm talking about, Rick, is something that is um, decades and generations long and committed long-term uh, sorts of things, not just um, you know sit down for an hour and a half, have a, have a meal, have a few pictures, and then take off. That's not a relationship whatsoever. Um, let me give you another example. Um, say a church or a group within a church uh, committing to a county jail or a local prison, um, writing letters, visiting regularly, developing committed friendships, coordinating prisoners on parole with job opportunities, advocating for former inmates and helping them reintegrate in communities. All those kinds of things would take training and intense commitment um, because, of course, uh, with all such work like that, good motives without training and expertise always, always, always goes bad and does loads of damage, not only to people that we would like to be serving, but to ourselves. Um, so that, that would take a massive commitment. And whenever I say church, um, I'm thinking of um, a huge church as something, you know, like around 150 people or so. Um, some some churches are larger than that. Perhaps you could have an intensely committed group within a church. Um, but I'm thinking of an entire community committing um, intensely over a period of time. And uh, in a sense, that would cover the effectiveness concern um, but it also would do so specifically, um, it would do so in a way that brings to bear everything that a church is. And um, the benefit is for the church, like in the action. It has um, redemptive effects on a community. And um, specifically, a church can have redemptive effects on people that the church wants to serve alongside. And I want to say... Um, I want to say that a church is serving alongside of people and not merely serving people uh, because the church is radically unlike any kind of or other organization where the church does not ever behave paternalistically. Uh, we forge relationships of mutuality. We, we forge relationships of solidarity with people. And, and that includes people on the margins of society um, where there's degradation, suffering, exploitation, marginalization. We don't look down our noses and from on high um, help help out such people. We join together with them and um, put our arms around them and identify with them. But here are a couple reasons uh, why I think it's really important to be involved in such efforts specifically and strategically as churches. Uh, first of all, and this is just um, patently obvious, but um, we've missed it. This is what the church is called to in the Bible, period. So we should do it and not leave it to uh, organizations to do such things while we gather for an hour on Sunday and sing and listen to a sermon and then head to lunch. Basically, uh, much of American evangelicalism has farmed out being Christian, and we should start being Christian. It's something that we are, something that we ought to be interested in and not just send money to an organization to be Christian on our behalf. Um, the church has been missing out on Christian efforts uh, because we have organizations that do it. What, what, what is there to do? <clears throat> That's tragic. Second concern, uh, being highly involved in an effort like this as a community would require that all community members make costly decisions that would affect the shape of their lives, 
they would actually be committing to something of Christian action. So it would be, it would, it would cost a lot um, to carve out eight, 10, 12 hours a week and say, I'm going to commit to this for five or 10 years, um, or maybe be part of a rotation where, you know, every several months, um, people are, are moved in and out so that we can have rest. But, uh, but there's going to be a massive commitment of my life to this effort um, uh, where I'm, I'm uh, advocating in ways that Rick mentioned, advocating to um, local governing bodies um, with regard to housing, zoning, all kinds of stuff. I think one of the biggest uh, realities of advocacy, I would love to see so many so, uh, churches in a variety of places around the country do is band together and demand that local governing bodies adjust um, uh, how money is allocated to public schools uh, so that all schools throughout um, cities and states require uh, uh, receive equal funding. Um, that is one of the greatest uh, sources of injustice and would be one way that we could advocate for the kind of justice that rightly represents God's restorative justice. But again, um, I don't, this is, these are the kinds of things that the American church will, will simply not undertake um, because it will be unpopular with the people that populate our churches. And so we don't want to call anybody to that sort of thing. It's costly. Another consideration um, about doing this sort of thing as a church. Um, efforts like I'm talking about uh, with working with a, a local jail um, or um, having a church commit to the sort of um, uh, agency that Rick is involved in. Um, but such an effort would mean that all parts of the body have to work together, which would form... It's efforts like that that actually form community and that strengthen community. When a church is involved with an effort like this, it's like a, a physical body going to the gym, or it's like a physical body doing work. It builds muscle. It makes the heart pump. It makes the blood flow. It is actually activity. This is something that our church was involved in. We we're involved in a local charity that helps um, uh, homeless families, intact homeless families, get into sustainable housing. And um, all the efforts that are involved in that build relationships. I mean, you have to be talking with one another. You have to be strategizing. You have to be have regular meetings and get together and then be involved in uncomfortable situations together. It's the kind of involvement with one another, uh, people in your church, over a period of years um, that consumes large chunks of our lives with a bunch of other people that whole process binds people together intensely. Uh, again, it's not just sort of sending money to an organization to get it done. It's being involved. It's getting trained. It's cultivating relationships and doing loads and loads of communication and, um, you know, of course, eating together. We want to throw that in because that's one of those blessed parts of being human. And um, that should be a key part of, uh, of what we do. Uniquely, uh, the church is not a group of people with shared interests. Uh, the church is an intergenerational, multi-ethnic group of people that God creates by the Spirit. And such efforts that I'm talking about uh, require commitment, and they bind together specifically that sort of a social body. 
And churches contain all sorts of unpredictable people. Um, all the groups in our culture that are othered, the racial other, the gendered other, disabled people, um, from from the lens of, of how an organization sees people, many of, of such people will, will, will be seen to be a drag on the overall efforts being carried out. But the church can never see people that way. And it, it the church has to figure out how to function while not marginalizing anybody and making everyone feel validated and absolutely essential and completely included. But that's not how organizations can operate. They have to be effective. They have to promote um, the people who are effective. And they have to put in front high performers, underperformers, or ineffective people, people who are a drag on the mission, or others who are told that they don't fit the mission, end up being washed out of such organizations. But organizations, uh, they can function in that way. In fact, they need to function in that way in order to report positively to their, their stakeholders, people who are donors, etc. Because you need to solicit more donations. So you want to give good reports. Um, and of course, you need numbers and things that can be measured. Um, there's the pressure of reporting about maximized resources and maximal outcomes. All those dynamics end up weeding people out, um, people who are absolutely essential and who are central to the church. So my major concern is not simply that effectiveness is a bad thing. Um, my major concern is that a range of values has basically set the church on the sideline and uh, we've sort of committed organizations and very well maybe organizations um, filled with Christian people. Um, but organ parachurch organizations are not the church. Uh, they don't they don't function at all in the same way. The church is a radically different sort of social unit. It is it is God's new family in Christ. It's the difference between um, a well-run company where people really like each other and a family. Um, this new family in Christ is given as a gift to the vulnerable. It's a gift to the excluded. It's a gift to the marginalized. And what the church offers is a warm community of welcome, support, love, hearty meals, advocacy, belonging, as the church commits to the world and to the excluded and oppressed and exploited over a period of decades, over long periods of time. And, and it says that sort of community that we do our work in the world. So that's my big concern is um, action by the church happens as the church. It's not just the job getting done. Um, and there are just different measures. Anyway, my thoughts, uh, I, need to, I need to read uh, Mark's email a bit more carefully and get back to him. I appreciate uh, Rick and Mark pushing back on what I've said. My thoughts are not terribly thoroughly formed. Um, I'm just trying to sort of get my head around them and uh, sort of think through what the church is missing and uh, what exactly is happening in this larger range of dynamics involving parachurch organizations. I don't want to criticize them too roundly. I belong to one. I mean, I, I teach at a in a seminary that that uh, seeks to serve the church, and I myself have no illusions that that this is that I work for the church. I get a paycheck. Um, our president raises money from donors. Uh, there are a number of dynamics that are at work 
in this organization that make it an organization that belongs squarely to the present age and any good that it does, um, I mean, any value that this organization has for the church, I should say, sorry, I just had a massive burrito in my brain. Not all the blood is flowing to my brain. Any good that this organization does, it does as it does good for the local church, for our, our churches here in Grand Rapids and ministry leaders as they serve the church. Uh, but I have no illusions um, about the character of Christian organizations having been in them for much of my adult life. I have a pretty uh, cynical view of how they operate. Um, yeah, perhaps I'll leave it there. I do want to retain my job. I want to tell you about a book. I'm going to use a technical term to talk about this book, its title, and its topic, but it's also a very arresting word, a striking word to many of our ears. So if you are listening with a small child or if you've got delicate ears, you may want to mute things at this point or skip ahead. But please know that I'm using this word because I think this book is so important and so critical for this current cultural moment as it is really for any time. The book is called On Bullshit, and it's by Harry Frankfurt. Frankfurt is Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at Princeton University, where he taught for many years, along with another, um, among other distinguished places. And this little book is published by Princeton University Press. The book is really an essay examining the phenomenon of bullshit. It's a very serious analysis, while also uh, admittedly being somewhat lighthearted because of the topic. Frankfurt observes that one of the clearest and most dominant features of our culture is that there is just so much bullshit. And he's right. He distinguishes bullshit from the more, uh, both from truth-telling and from lying. The liar and the truth-teller are both seriously concerned with what is real, with what is true. One tells the truth, one who, or sorry, one who tells the truth wants to rightly represent what is real, while the liar is concerned to conceal what is real or the facts of a case. Bullshit is a different matter entirely, and a bullshitter is up to something completely different. Frankfurt finds that bullshitting is, quote, closer to bluffing, surely, than to telling a lie, unquote. Another quote, he claims that the essence of bullshit is not that it is false, but that it is phony. Although bullshit is produced without concern with the truth, it need not be false. The bullshitter is faking things. One who bullshits does not aim to deceive others about the facts of a case. Here's another quote. What he does necessarily attempt to deceive us about is his enterprise. His only indispensable distinctive characteristic is that in a certain way, he misrepresents what he is up to. And that is a critical distinction. The liar misrepresents the truth about a matter, but the bullshitter misrepresents the truth about himself. One who bullshits speaks any combination of what is true and false in order to conceal his real agenda. Frankfurt's meditation on bullshit has been such a helpful guide for me uh, to the last four or five years of regarding the current president. Like many other people, I've been simply gobsmacked to listen to the things that come from his mouth. I can't help but try to analyze and understand the way he talks because what I do for a living is interpret communication. I interpret rhetoric. I interpret texts 
That's my job. And uh, that function of my brain is not something I can easily turn off. So I'm always wondering, what in the world is he saying? Why is he saying this the way that he's saying it? And what's his real aim and agenda? I've come to see that it's far more helpful to regard the president not as a liar, but as a bullshitter. While he routinely speaks falsely, whether about fumes from windmills, Finland raking its forest floors to prevent forest fires, his quote-unquote landslide victory in the Electoral College, or the amazement of doctors at his understanding of science, when he talks this way, he's not simply lying, he's bullshitting. To regard him merely as a liar is to miss the rhetorical function of his speech. And to attempt to catch him in a lie, which so many media outlets and reporters try to do, is really to waste one's efforts. For example, the Washington Post has tracked his false and misleading statements over the last several years, and they number above 20,000. Rather than trying to identify all of these, I think it's far more productive to inquire what he is hiding. Years ago, when I was teaching evangelical undergrads, I gave a lecture on Frankfurt's book and uh, its analysis of bullshit because I realized that so much of what these students were writing was simply bullshit. They were representing how they had been trained to think about and uh, talk about being Christian. I assigned them to analyze various writings on Christian spirituality, and rather than noting what a certain author had written and reflecting on it carefully, they spouted all manner of things, like, this just made me realize how important it is to glorify God in all that we do, or we just need to really love God and love others and reach out and blah, blah, blah. Pure bullshit. What they were writing was just an unending stream of Christian cliches strung together that had no connection to what they really thought or to the assigned reading. Perhaps this book is essential reading for evangelicals. It certainly might help us analyze what certain supposed evangelical leaders are saying, along with helping us to, uh, to to interpret the rhetoric of the current president. I'm grateful Uh, for one, for Frankfurt's incisive analysis in this book. As I said, I've read it over several times over the last few years in an attempt to simply keep a grip on my sanity. It's very short, just about 65 pages, and a wonderful read. You can easily find it from a variety of outlets. It's been out for 35 years or so, so you can find a used copy easily. I highly recommend it, and as always, I recommend that you get it from an independent bookstore. So over the last two episodes, I've been talking about cruciformity, and I've been doing that in an effort to talk about what identity as Christians is like and how it is shaped and how it is determined in the New Testament. And um, as I said over the last couple of episodes, I've wanted to address identity for a while now because I think that this lies at the heart of so many confusions within my inherited culture that is American evangelicalism. Um The heart of being Christian is the cross, because the cross reveals the identity of God and of Christ and what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And I talked about that from Philippians 2, where um, Christ, being God from eternity past, did not consider his being God 
something to be ga- something to be um, exploited for his own gain. But yet, um, on the other hand, he poured himself out, expended himself, uh, went to the place of humility, incarnated himself, and went all the way to the place of the cross. Was faithful to God to the point of death, and because he did that, God exalted him and gave him God's own name, the name Yahweh. So, uh, that, because that life of self-expenditure is what Yahweh means, and that's what it means to be Christ. So, to be a follower of this Messiah and of this God is to be a person shaped by the cross. It is to be cruciform, and this is the heart of cruciformity, imitating Jesus's pattern of not exploiting privileges for gain, self-expending on behalf of others in the hope of enjoying resurrection life now and looking forward to participating fully in the resurrection in the future. So um, one final point I wanted to make about the connection of cruciformity to the church is that the church is being shaped by the cross uh, means that it will it will be an ongoing uh, sorry it'll be a community of ongoing justice that is active justice uh, that is in a constant process of renewal and reconfiguration socially and I'm not talking about just you know any earthly vision of justice um, in Scripture God's righteous people um, are God's just people uh, it's so sad that we've lost sight of this in white American Christianity, but in uh, Hebrew and Greek, the words for uh, righteousness are the words for justice. So the fact that God is righteous and he calls a righteous people and calls Israel to be righteous um, means that God is a God of justice and calls Israel to be a people that are continually enacting justice, restorative justice, setting right community dynamics that have been put wrong, um, looking to advocate for people who have been marginalized and mistreated. And that background of justice is this is uh, determinative for what happens in the New Testament. And uh, the Greek terms for righteousness and justice are the same, which is one of the great tragedies of uh, sort of Protestant theology is um, that our theology is so shaped by justification, by faith as it is, um, does not understand the uh, the intimate connection between justification and justice, that God makes his people a just people who are committed to ongoing justice. Well, one of the places where we can see this um, continual, generations-long, lifelong community uh, commitment uh, to restorative justice and to ongoing transformation is in Ephesians 4, 20 to 24. And this is a passage that is similar to many others in Paul's letters. It um, basically in Paul's theological vision of the cross, believers have died with Christ to this world and its ways and have been raised to new life with Christ and exist now in new cosmic space. That is the new creation, God's new, God's creation of a new humanity in which God is restoring us to our full humanity, making us true humans, being human basically as God had originally intended. And the pattern of what that looks like is Christ himself. Well, Ephesians 4, 20 to 24 is one of the places where we can see this ongoing 
dynamic. Uh, Paul says that, however, he's just mentioned um, a bunch of corrupted ways of life that are found out there in the world among Gentile cultures. And Paul, after listing all these corrupted behaviors, Paul says, that, however, is not the way of life that you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old humanity. I just, I go crazy when I read some of these translations um, that talk about putting off your old self. That's an individualized translation uh, represented by the NIV and a bunch of others. Paul's talking about um, the corporate humanity that is that is like an in Adam, a corrupted uh, vision of what it means to be human according to the old age, and that's a that's something that we that humanity shared corporately. Put off that old humanity, that old way of being human, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. That is, it's it's coming apart. It's being it's 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 going down to destruction. Um, by basically wanting the wrong things or being fooled into desiring the wrong things. So it's a destructive way of life. Put it off and be made new in the attitude of your minds. That is, have your, your imaginations renovated, transformed, think differently. And thirdly, put on the new humanity created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So Paul is calling the church to always be in this process of constant transformation into the new way of being human after the pattern of Christ. And this is what the church should be doing. Always, routinely, constantly identifying behaviors and social patterns that exist among us that are conformed to this present age. I mean, just doing a lot of reflecting socially and discussing among ourselves what are the ways that our community dynamics as churches still bear the marks of corrupted humanity uh, through division, through uh, seeking prestige, through, through seeking power, um, through participating in cultural dynamics of division, um, by being complacent about exploitation, being complacent about injustices that exist among us, um, talking about those sorts of things all the time and identifying them and ridding them from our communities. Then secondly, as I said, always changing our thinking, having our imaginations renewed and renovated according to our new identity in Christ, and then coming up with creative behaviors and social patterns and community dynamics that are characteristic of our new location in Christ, inventing those. So being Christian, being um, truly human in God's good world, um, according to God's new creation people, uh, means cultivating immense creativity as far as what it means to be human in this world. And that will always look like um, moving the marginalized to the center. It'll always look like um, seeing temptations to power and prestige-seeking as empty illusions that we need to be putting off, uh, recognizing the deceitfulness of riches, recognizing that we have fallen into patterns of cultivating anger and resentment, and we need to cultivate the practices of reconciliation and forgiveness. Um, and of course, identifying any of the ways that ethnic and racial division, oppression, marginalization, or um, gender injustice exist among us, and 
be actively setting those right. That is what God calls the church to. And that's it's a big task, but that's our life. That's not like one of the things that we do among a, n- a number of other things. This is basically the vision of what it means to be the church. Um, and that's a community project that the church engages over decades, uh, discussing, discerning, and uh, undergoing actual transformation. And the reason why I'm saying this is um, because this is a community project. Um, Cruciform identity is not a one-size-fits-all sort of reality for all kingdom participants. The first, uh, in the Gospels, we get these uh, statements in Mark, at least, uh, where Jesus says that this is one of the dynamics that's going on in the kingdom. The first are last, and the last are first. Um, the kingdom dynamics that are up and running go against the grain of worldly conceptions of justice and of rewards. Just think about the parable of the workers in the field. Um, a guy hires a bunch of day laborers, one you know, a bunch he hires at eight o'clock and then at 10 and noon and two o'clock and four o'clock or whatever. And he ends up paying the people that he uh, hired at eight the same as the people he paid at four. Uh, he, he hired at four. What is going on there? Well, in this process of um, the cross claiming lives and communities and creating this, uh, these new communities in Christ, that we call the kingdom of God, um, what the cross is doing is it's radically socially reconfiguring everybody, um, bringing, the, bringing certain people up and bringing other people down to set them all alongside each other as siblings, as equals. Um, so it's really important in a cruciform community um, to determine where you come from when you enter the kingdom, that is, your social location sort of within this present age is going to determine sort of where you're going and what's happening to you once you enter the kingdom. Because not every, not, not cr- being Christian or the identity of every Christian is not going to be the same. Um, James says this in James chapter 1. When he says believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. They ought to boast in their high position. They ought to have their calling card be their exalted status. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wild flower. So people who already have exalted social status in this world, in this present age, when they are brought into the kingdom are going to be brought low. And it's their task to focus on their humiliation and how it is that that kingdom dynamics are bringing them down so that they are set alongside others as siblings and uh, people who are in humble circumstances or who are already marginalized, excluded, exploited, oppressed. uh, When the cross claims them, it is elevating them. It is dignifying them so that they are brought up and alongside everybody else in the kingdom so that there is siblingship, so that there is co-citizenship, so that we are all fellow image bearers um, in God's kingdom. We're fellow citizens of God's kingdom. We're fellow um, siblings in God's one new family in Christ. So that's why I'm 
I'm sort of uh, insisting here that um, that cruciformity is ultimately a community reality, and that everybody has to be discerning as far as where they're coming into the kingdom from, and what their social location is, sort of how, with regard to how the world configures it, because that is going to determine what it looks like for us to be Christian. This is not a one-size-fits-all reality. And um, this is why, one of the many reasons why it is completely backwards and does no good, um, especially in, in uh, discussing race and um, along with a number of other things, when we uh, want to claim that we're colorblind or we don't see social status and all that kind of stuff, that is basically um, a refusal to have a shrewd vision of what's happening in the kingdom. People are being brought low. People are being lifted up. Everything's moving around. And, um, you know, it's the kingdom dynamic is destabilizing uh, current social structures. And it's our task to get in on that and to have a, um, a keen vision of where we all stand in. Uh, culture, so that so that we know where the kingdom is bringing us to, and um, this is why, as I have said before, and and what I'm trying to get to is um, where I started several episodes ago in saying that I want to talk about identity because so many Christians just don't understand what it means to be Christian, and this comes up in discussions of critical race theory, feminism. Uh, Marxism, all these discussions with regard to Black Lives Matter, and um, all of the uh, many discussions up and running with, uh, with um, uh, some of the issues revolving around uh, the treatment of Black people in America over the last uh, seven or eight months or so, which has a history that goes back 401 years. Um, the reason why I've said this is because uh, so many of the reactions that I've heard um, on the part of many white Christians to a lot of these larger discussions demonstrates that they do not understand what it means to be Christian. And here is exactly what I'm talking about, that to be Christian is to understand that I'm being brought into this radically new reality that is configuring everything utterly. And um, if I'm not discerning exactly how it is doing that, I am basically blind with regard to kingdom realities. And I, and I really um, not sure I can make much of a claim to be in the kingdom of God. It's important to critically understand culture and um, how culture configures my identity so that I understand how the cross redeems my identity and gives me a new identity and then sets me alongside of others um, in specific, particular ways, not in general ways. Um, if I have a sister in Christ, I'm not sort of set alongside of her in the same way that I am um, a brother in Christ. Um, my current culture sets me at the center of things. Um, I'm a white man, and um, my current culture does not treat uh, people of color in the same way. It does not treat women the same way. It does not treat women of color the same way. Um my culture is one that's loaded with injustices. And if I'm not attuned to those, um, then I'm not, uh, I'm not carefully discerning kingdom dynamics the way that I need to be. So um, this is where uh, I find an expression like identity politics really, really helpful. And I, again, I don't understand why people have struggles with these sorts of things. Um, different people 
have different histories and uh, different experiences of participation in our culture. And as somebody claimed by the cross and somebody uh, who claims anyway to be um, claimed by the kingdom, um, I want to be very tuned to um, the varieties of experience in our culture, understanding um, that uh, a route to all of this that we refer to as identity politics is a route that helps me to see others clearly and to see them with compassion and understand their particular struggles. Um, I find that most people who have objections to what we call identity politics um, are victims themselves of identity politics or are are actually practicing identity politics but just don't want to be honest about it. Um, That is uh, certainly the history of white people in America and the enshrinement of whiteness um, into the Constitution. I mean, how... I mean, who has been practicing identity politics for the last several hundred years is the honest question. Um, so anyway, I find that um, I find that really grappling with um, thoroughly and perseveringly with a cruciform identity opens up a lot of creative thinking for participating in um, God's public justice and um, these larger dynamics of God's public justice are things that I routinely find uh, either baffle or offend conservative, white, evangelical Christian people, and which, again, has raised for me uh, the issue that there is some kind of a crisis of what it means to be Christian in the culture that I have inhabited uh, for some time. Um couple other implications for me with regard to cruciformity. This is just one of the most fruitful identity markers that I, um, that, you know, for me, this has been transformative for me in so many ways. Um, and, and honestly, I, this is something I think about all the time. You know, who am I? How does the gospel configure my identity? Uh, what, what are the things I'm going to be facing the rest of the day as a person uh, dead to this world and alive to the world to come? What does it mean? Uh, how does this look? For how my day is going to unfold uh, when I have this conversation later today or that one, um, being a person who is dead in Christ and alive in Christ, uh, what are what are some of the options for how I might respond? And what are some things that are that I'm tempted to respond, ways I'm tempted to respond that are simply ruled out by my new identity? Uh, so, I mean, these are the kinds of questions that I think we all ought to be asking ourselves throughout our days. Well, there are so many implications of this basically fundamental um, identity of Christian people that is their cruciform identity. And this is, I don't know, there's so many things I'd love to talk about uh, with regard to varieties of my relationships. Um, this has changed my parenting in so many ways. Uh, it, had, it had changed it, and now it shapes my relating to my adult children uh, so that we enjoy great relationships. Um, but I mean, just one thing, this is just, helped me in so many ways over the years in cultivating genuineness in relationships and in interactions. Um, you know, cultivating authenticity rather than giving into cultivating an image of strength or competence um, or other desires for how I want to control other people's perceptions of me. Um, that doesn't come naturally for me. I, I, mean, I grew up in a very image conscious environment and that um, has stayed with me. And, um, but I, you know, 
cultivating a cruciform um, identity um, really has just affected me uh, profoundly in thinking through how, for Paul, this led him to embrace shame and weakness rather than uh, power-seeking and prestige-seeking. And um, that whole dynamic, for me, in addition to um, understanding the, the, dynam- the, the dynamics of the Enneagram, have been just immensely helpful for me over the years. So when I engage with others, I very consciously put off desires to impress or to, I don't know, to wow others or to come off in certain ways. And I focus more on um, discerning how I can present myself in a way and how I can participate in an, in an interaction that clears space for others to thrive or that opens them up like a flower or like opens them up as a gift so that they feel received and welcomed. I focus on putting myself at their disposal and opening myself up uh, to wherever the interaction may go. Um, that has that has changed me from being sort of a more manipulative person uh, to being a person that um, participates joyfully in uh, in a variety of conversations, and it's been a liberating reality for me, which is makes perfect sense because the cross ultimately is a liberating dynamic. It's the thing that liberates us from the present evil age, which is enslaving. Um, by the way, this is one of the reasons why I feel uh, so strongly about evangelism the, the way that I do, because uh, you know we just don't think about evangelism. Uh, from the cross. We're not thinking about welcoming and receiving others. We're thinking about asserting power over them, wanting to change them, um, rather than thinking um, about embodying the gospel. We are sort of acting, to my mind anyway, against the dynamics of the gospel, which is not a good idea if we're trying to win people to the gospel. Anyway, one of a number of contradictions at the heart of evangelical culture, um, lift up the hood, there are many. So there's loads to be said about Christian identity or identity as Christian people, um, but fundamental to all of that is to be claimed by the cross. And there are loads of other identities that go along with being a cross-claimed person, being loved by God, being a, si- a sibling in God's family, being a body part, being an essential part of a corporate body, being an image bearer. Um all these ways of thinking about identity as Christians are flexible and creative. The identities that we find in the New Testament are not meant to close down possibilities. They're meant to provoke our imaginations, to imagine possibilities for action, for how we think of ourselves, for how to enter into conversations um, in promising and profitable ways, um, ways that will bless us and bring blessing to other people. Um, but I just don't... I don't... Um, I don't think we're exploiting this reality like we could be. That is really pressing home to our minds and doing the hard work, the the life-giving work of imagining what kind of possibilities for understanding ourselves do these identity markers open up? And how do they reconfigure situations so that we can participate in them in in life-giving ways? Um, This is why I've said that it seems to me that so many Christian people just simply don't know who they are or they don't understand what it means to be Christian because these core 
ways that Christian identities configured in the Bible just do not seem to make their way into our community practices um, and into our lives as corporate bodies of people who call themselves God's people. Uh, so the fundamental contradictions to me are people who are cruciform cannot have discussions about politics and be saturated with fear, with suspicion, with anger. Um, to be a cross-shaped person is to be a person that does not talk about or worry about or fear about having rights taken away. Um, like I said, I mean, the, the, these dominant discussions that I've had with supposedly Christian people where um, there's all sorts of fear about having something taken away from us. Um, and I've asked a number of times over the last four or five years, because this has been um, a routine conversation that I've had, do you not realize what happened when you were baptized, that you gave up rights, um, that you... you yeah, you died with Christ to this age. So to now insist on your life in this age is to deny your baptism. It's a denial of Christian identity. And in discussions of immigration, when I hear people fearful of others or demonizing people who are uh, traumatized or fearing that we don't want to let them in to take over what is ours, I just wonder... If you're a baptized person who has identified with the death of Christ, who has given up everything, how can you worry about someone taking it away? You don't have it anymore. Do you, are you denying your baptism? Um, as I've said before, cruciformity is a political agenda. It is the rejection of power. It is uh, an embrace of the power of the new age. Um, but it is it is an embrace of our death to this world and our embrace of our identity in the next world. Loads and loads and loads of implications that, um, that flow from all of that, um, but I just thought it would be helpful to kind of spend several episodes talking about cruciformity as the heart of Christian identity. While I'm finishing up this recording uh, with a beautifully bright... Uh, Beautiful, bright, sunny day. Loads of clouds in the sky, but the sun's shining through. I'm looking over the lake in my cushy office setting and uh, can't help but say it's a beautiful day. Don't let it get away. <laughs>